Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R once again. We have an hour of science for you. On the line with me is Dr. Laura. Good morning, madam. How are you? Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm well. You have an elaborate home behind you. Is that a fake background or is that actually your home? This is legitimately my home. It's just it's a it's a jungle back here. <laughs> like got- a lot of plants. It was it was a COVID thing. Yeah, my yeah. plants just bred. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you've got play. I remember your old place in uh, North Melbourne, but this is your new place, and it's uh, there's just plants everywhere. They're in the jungle. Yeah, it's expanded. Yeah, I propagate now. Very nice, very nice. Doctor Ailey's in the studio with me. Good morning, madam. How are you? Good morning, Doctor Shane. How are we going? Good. Uh, I went for a swim this morning, so I'm a little bit. Uh, a little bit stiff. Yeah, sore. probably smell like chlorine. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Okay. It's better than disinfectant. That's well, uh, the usual know, permeating think, smell. Uh, I don't know. Actually, where I go is not too bad. But uh, you know, I get in there early and you know, I do my thing. And people, you know, they, the lifeguards always look at me. They're like, "Is he okay?" <laughs> <laughs> Take that personally. I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm just not that good, you know. But I'm fine. I'm my- Get in there. I'll make it. I promise. Yeah, I'm doing my thing. It reminds me. Remember that Eric the Eel from the 2000 oh, Olympics? How can we brilliant. forget? I'm just like that. They look oh, at me like that, brilliant. but no one claps. Oh. <laughs> but I make it. No standing ovation for you. <laughs> I make it to the end. Oh. Anyway, it's all good. Well, folks, we've got a big show for you today. We'll be um talking to a couple of people who have been on the show numerous times before, actually, and are immune compromised. So that's going to be an interesting discussion. And also we have a guest in talking about, believe it or not, resurrecting the Tasmanian tiger. Wild ride that will be. That's going to be cool. So we'll chat about that. But before we get into all that, we've got some news for you. Dr. Laura, why don't we start with you? What have you got? Sure. Well, I um, read a really awesome study that was published this week, which um, gives some of the actual molecular biology behind why and how female octopuses mutilate themselves after giving birth. Now, suicidal reproduction, or like the scientific term is semi-parity, just found that out, um, is pretty common in nature. And octopuses do this, both males and females. And so even though octopuses are, of course, highly intelligent, they have nine brains, three hearts, you may know, but um, they also um, have a really short lifespan between six months and three years. And so both males and females um, sort of commit suicide um, following um, reproduction. The males, they go, they go first. That's really quick. You know, straight after, um, cop- after copulating, they will wither and die. Of mm. course, a lot will, um, you know, potentially get cannibalized by the much larger females. Did you know that actually female octopuses can be up to 10,000 times in size in some species to the male? It can be like a six-foot female and a one-inch male. That's so cute. <laughs> a lot. How does that work? It's so cute. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like a Shih Tzu and the St. Bernard <laughs> yeah, kind of picture right. there going, isn't exactly. it? You know, is that exactly. right? Exactly. Is that right? Very odd. You know a lot of male octopuses, because the females are known to be so aggressive, they've, like, devised strategies to get around sort of, you know, getting cannibalized. So there's a detachable long arm which can just deliver sperm safely from a distance. Right. Nevertheless, the males will still die, and that's all because of hormonal changes in the octave gland, which switch on reproduction, switch off digestion, males stop eating, wither and die. The females stay alive a little bit longer, long enough to protect their eggs, which can be several months to a year. But um, while they're protecting their eggs, they also um, wither and die as well. They stop eating. But females are really weird. Of course they are. It's octopuses. They also self-harm. They rip off their own arms. They're covered in skin lesions. So they, they're self-mutilating while they do this. So it's a, it's a, it's a bad way to go for female yeah. octopus. Now, decades ago, it was shown that this whole behavior comes from the optic gland, which is between the eyes, and it sort of um, has a lot of similarities to a pituitary gland within a human. And it was shown that if you remove this gland, a female octopus will just abandon her eggs, start eating again, and live longer. So it was known that there was activity within this gland, which is controlling the behavior, but exactly what was going on was unclear. And so in this new study, they analyzed the chemical secretions of what was going on within this gland. 
comparing unmated versus mated females and looking at hormonal changes. And a lot of the hormonal changes were to do with reproduction, for example, you know, um, the, the, the usual candidates like progesterone, for example. But um, a surprising change that they found was um, changes in cholesterol metabolism. And they found this stark increase in 7-dehydrocholesterol or 7-DHC, which is a precursor to cholesterol. And this is known to be highly toxic in humans. And even though they, it was surprising that they found this and they didn't really exactly nail that it was definitely this cholesterol that was causing this behavior. But what is really curious is there's a rare genetic disorder in humans um, called um, Smith-Lemily optic syndrome, which the whole mark of that syndrome is an increase in the same precursor to cholesterol, the 7-DHC. And the behavioral changes that you see in um, largely kids that have this genetic disorder is self-harm behavior. So the similarities between having this precursor to cholesterol, a change in that metabolism, and then inducing that self-harm behavior, um, that was super interesting. And so the scientists are now following up on on exactly what's going on there. So I thought that was remarkable. Yeah, that's phenomenal too, because, you know, almost every single thing we hear about octopuses is so different to us. You know, like a lot of the behaviors and things are so different to us. I mean, I, I just hear that stuff about the males and the and the breeding. You can imagine, you know, male-to-male octopus conversations. You know, have you met anyone yet? No, and I am trying to avoid it for as long as possible because I don't want to die. Like, what do I have to do? Detach my own arm yeah. to sort of like deliver the sperm to this woman? I mean, keep me away. I don't, know, I don't want to go near her. Yeah. Um, and then they die anyway. It's a sad life. You know, there's a lot of people out there. There's actually scientific papers. I'm not sure the legitimacy where they actually believe that octopuses are derived from outer space. Yeah, I've heard that before. Um, <laughs> I think that's uh, it's probably a given that they're aliens. Yep. Um, yep. Otherwise, uh, where's the fun? I, I bl- there was a paper about that once that kind yeah. of somehow got yeah. through peer review. I remember this yeah. one. that I don't know how, but it got yeah. through peer review saying think, octopuses were from outer space. You know, it's one possibility. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, but I've met a few people who well, could be from out of space that's too. True. A few of them had a bad day yesterday. Anyway, uh, moving on from that. Thank you, Dr. Laura. Uh, although not my favorite. He Anyway, uh, let's not talk let's about not that. Go let's not go, go there. Dr. Ailey, what do you got for us? Oh, look, Dr. Shane, I've got a really interesting story um, from some researchers out of the New York Institute of Technology, actually. And I love this one because this one's about parrots. And who doesn't love parrots? I like parrots. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have a lot Can of I them just in tell this country. You, I was mm. up in the country yesterday near Dalesford, mm. had to get out of the Dodge. Mm. And um, I swerved to, to avoid the parrots. Oh, did you? <laughs> I know you're not supposed to do that, but there was no one around. I thought, you know what? Look at that thing. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And its two friends flew off. Yeah. And it just And it was sort of like, what's happening? Yeah. And so me and my yeah. car, we swerved and, it, you know, it was controlled. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Par- that's good. More importantly, the parrot, the parrot was, was okay. Safe. Well, that's yeah. good. And it was walking around on two legs, I assume. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, parrots and, and pretty much all other, other other animals tend to walk around on either legs. two legs or, or maybe four, four. sometimes, yeah. right? But never three. Never three. Mm. Yeah, well, maybe that's uh, changed now. Maybe not yeah. legs, but um, this is actually a story from, from this uh, these researchers in New York who, who actually looked at um, – and found out that a lot of parrots, well, at least one type of parrot, and they're hypothesising lots of types of parrots, are actually tripedal. Hmm. You know, hang on. Where's the a, third leg? I was going to say, got a little leg that, that we didn't know about? Is that, you know? Hmm. Well, no, because this is kind of like, this is basically what these researchers did, was they got little, six little lovebirds, you know, the little ones you keep, yep. they snuggle up to each other in the cage, they're so cute. Uh, they got six little lovebirds from a pet shop, and they put them in a little area where they could uh, climb up a wall and they put, uh, you know, instruments on the side of that wall that would measure the force of how they were climbing up the wall. And what they found was, I don't know if you've ever seen parrots in the Mm. wild climbing up a tree, they don't walk up a tree, right? They just fall out. Sometimes they fly into it, but oftentimes they walk up the side of a tree and they do so using their beaks, right? But what they found was that um, with these lovebirds, that the force um, exerted by the beak and the way that it interacted with the limbs basically acted like, like a third, a third limb. leg. Yeah. Wow. And so the um, yeah, which is pretty cool. And so the 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 kinetic forces that were exerted by the the beak were the same magnitude as the limbs. And so this is kind of seen in other animals too, right, occasionally, like kangaroos, right? They use their tails, tails. Yeah. as a fifth limb. Right. And um, they do so to, to you know, manoeuvre 
a bit more, you know, in a bit yeah. more of a complex way than 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 on four. But more or two for balance, things. I would. For thought. more for balance, yeah. right? But here, what they found with the parrots that was really interesting that was that think of a, a rock climber. They yep. were basically using it like another arm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so. You know, you kind of think, oh yeah, that's cute. Well, why does that matter, right? Um, but the the idea here is that the the um, the, the researchers are hypothesising that basically this parrot would have to have developed, um, you know, in an evolutionary sense to be able to use their beak in the same way as we use an arm, mm-hmm. right? You have to have coordinated motion, yeah, uh, yeah, between these limbs. You can't just kind of randomly chuck your beak and then you know move your legs in a weird yeah. way it wouldn't work because they climb up these they climb up um you know trees like like a rock climber would, yeah right yeah. and so the idea is that there is probably there has probably had to be um you know evolutionary changes in parrots compared to other birds um particularly in coordination around their neuro um muscular skeletal um you know evolution that would be a means that the, these parrots would be able to um, to do this, and so they've only looked at lovebirds now. They, they've started looking at the wild uh, in the wild. Uh, you know, they're in New York. Not a lot of parrots in New York, mm. um, but mm. they they have started looking uh, at this type of parrot called I think it's a monk parrot. Um, so they'll be able to start observing this in the wild as well. But of course, you know, here in Australia, you go out to the bush here, you they're see everywhere. you see parrots doing this all the time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it's a really interesting little quirk of biology that yeah, parrots have basically do have a third limb in the in the form of their beak. It's fascinating. We're going to get those parrots into a functional MRI. Obviously, yeah. the difference between them using the beak when they're eating to yes. when they're walking. Well, and exactly. Different parts of the brain. Exactly. Are and so up. that's the interesting yeah. thing, isn't it? Because if they are using it as a limb in this kind of you know multifunctional limb, yeah. um, you know that might be really different, yeah. and it's really interesting. And as I think of that idea, it's totally stupid because you've got to stay still in the functional yeah, MRI. Yeah, parrots and not going to do that. The parrots not going to do that, especially if you're asking them to walk. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> we need an alternative, uh, folks. We need yeah. an alternative. Um, just quickly before we go to the break. I wanted to mention to you too about uh, a little, little citizen science project, not that little actually, called the Hubble Asteroid Hunter Project. And you may have heard of this. Um, but basically what this uh, project did was it took uh, some over 11,000 members of the public actually contributed to this. Wow. And they took 37,000 images that Hubble has taken over a decade or so. And they started looking for um, what are called asteroid trails. So because all these images last for around 30 minutes each, some longer, some shorter, an asteroid will leave a streak uh-huh. across the image because it's moving. Like a star streak. Like a star streak. Like you know, long shutter speed absolutely, kind of camera. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what they did was they said, okay, well, let's see if you guys can identify these. We, you know, we at Hubble Central don't want to be looking through 37,000 <laughs> yeah, images. Take a while. But some public will do it yeah. for us. And they did, and they found, and this number may be coincidental or not, the number is 1,701. Wow. 1,701. Wow. Uh, you know, just mm. for the Star Trek fans yep. out there, uh, they found 1,701 new asteroid trails, of which about a third of them were from known recorded asteroids. Only a third? Yeah. So That's about cool. two thirds of them are from unknown asteroids. And these aren't ones, these are most probably around the, um, you know, the, the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. So they're not necessarily you know, hurtling towards mm. New York City kind of stuff. Um, you know, they're not it's making always it, New York City. It's isn't always it? New York City. Oh, no. Yeah, no way. Um, you know, <laughs> it was sort of like lawn or something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> People wouldn't pay attention as no. much. I don't know. I love lawn, no. though. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. But, um, but no, they've, they've found all of these um, new asteroids. And so now the, the, the next step is, of course, to confirm which ones they are and so forth and, and look at them and see what they're about and so forth. But I think this is a great example where we have so much data sometimes. There's just not enough time to yeah. examine it. And citizen science projects like this are really cool. And if, if you're one of the people who found one of the 1,701 asteroid trails, um, that would be pretty That'd be pretty cool. That'd I haven't worked awesome. out the percentage of the – someone else can work that out for me. It's probably about 10% of the people who – did it would have found one? Yeah, which that's is, um, that's actually a pretty high percentage. It's kind of cool. Pretty chuffed with yeah, that. One in ten chance. Yeah, hey, you know, got a better chance of anyway. Um, good stuff. All right, um, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, folks, we are going to have one of uh, a repeat offender guests on. Uh, you may remember little May. She first came on when she was, I think, five years of age, and uh, she has primary immunodeficiency syndrome, and her and her mum, uh, Louise school will be on in just a few minutes so hang in there we're going to play some music for you and hopefully when we come back we'll be chatting to the two of them yet again about what life is like with that particular condition 
Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3RRR. On the line with us now are two of my favorite guests. I have Louise Driscoll and her daughter, May. Good morning, May. Good morning. How are you feeling? Good. Now, we started interviewing you, I think, when you were five years old. Do you remember coming into the studio when you were five? Yes. It was a while back. And you're now how old? Eight. Excellent. And you're in grade Three. Three. How's school going for you? Good. Excellent. Now, Louise, tell us a little bit about you and your daughter because I think some of our listeners will remember your previous interviews. I think we might have missed one last year because of some pandemic thingy. Um, But we've interviewed you most years to sort of shine a bit of a light on the condition that you guys have. Tell us about that. So we both have um, common variable immune deficiency or CVID, which is a primary immune deficiency. So not something that's inherited, but something that we're both born with. Mm. I mean, it's something that's acquired, I should say, something we're both born with. Yep. And and what does that mean exactly in terms of your immune systems? Like what, what's going on there? So our bodies don't produce enough antibodies to fight off infections. Um, and we so need to supplement um, with weekly infusions, or I have monthly, May has weekly, and so immunoglobulin replacement therapy. Right. So you have to. So May, you have to go and get an infusion every single week to make sure you're healthy. No, but we do it at home. Oh well, that's okay then. If it's at home, not a big yeah. deal. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And yeah. and how have you found things over the last couple of years? Because a lot of people have been sick with the pandemic, and that's obviously a much bigger risk for you guys. So what's that been like for you, Mayor? Is it just normal? You were wearing a mask, I think, before the pandemic, weren't you? Yeah, um, I don't know. I was pretty. I was already used to it because I had to wear it all the time. Yeah, and what do you think about it now with people not wearing masks at all? How do you feel about that? It's cool because now um, everyone can breathe. Yeah, you like that? Yeah. Yeah, because um, you still have to wear a mask when you go out, though, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. And, Louise, how's that been over the last couple of years for you guys? I mean, you know, this is a very different sort of illness that you hadn't encountered before and you fall into that immune-compromised space and it must be, you know, particularly isolating. Yeah, it has been and it was pretty nerve-wracking, particularly when May um, wasn't vaccinated. She's now had her three vaccinations, which gives me a little bit of um, comfort. Um, But we're still pretty careful when we're out in the community aren't we? Um, and I've had COVID and was pretty unwell. So it's been, yeah, it's been a pretty scary time for us. Yeah. And what's the, the sort of long-term view there in terms of um, your immune systems and, and what's to come? I mean, you know, infusions every week is obviously a big deal. Is that something that we just keep doing and it works well? Yeah, I mean, you're, that- you've obviously had this your whole life as well. Yeah, it's lifelong. So May and I will have to have these infusions for the rest of our lives. Um, the infusions only replace a one type of antibody. So it's, it's sort of not like um, a cure for all types of infections, but it certainly helps and helps us live a, live a better life. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of complications that come with having CVID as well. Yeah. And May also has cystic fibrosis. So that's a double um, whammy for her, which is... Um, not ideal, but she's an amazing trooper that deals with everything. Yep. In a stride, don't you? In you a little sure champion. And and have you started working out what you might want to do when you grow up yet, May, or are we still too early? Um, I want to be a vet. You want to be a vet? Yeah. That's fantastic. How long have you wanted to be a vet? Probably since I was four. Since you were four. And what sort of animals do you like interacting with the most? Horses, dogs, and hmm, alpacas. Alpacas. You know, I love it when these kids bring out these amazing different <laughs> animals that, you know, most people like alpacas. We have a lot of alpacas in Australia too, don't we? Have you been to an alpaca farm? Well, we're going to one day, but I got to pat one at the Edendale farm. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, you're going to have to learn a lot of science to be uh, to be a vet. Are you ready for that? Yeah. You're doing okay in science at school, in maths and science? Yeah, I do tutoring on Mondays. Oh, you do tutoring on Mondays? Yes. Wow. How's that going? Good. And what about music? Are you uh, learning any instruments, May? We do drama and we're learning um, the ukulele. 
the ukulele. Excellent. Well, I think, um, yeah, I think, look, you're going to make it. You're going to make an amazing vet one day, I hope, May, and we'll keep chatting to you every year. I, I look forward to uh, the days when we can get you back into the studio. Are you a bit dark on your mum for getting sick before this? Because you were going to come in today and then you couldn't because mum was sick. Is that been yeah. annoying? Yeah, a bit annoying, yeah? Yeah, I like talking on microphones. Yeah, the microphones <laughs> are much better than doing it over, over the... Uh, <laughs> Over the Zoom call. Well, we will get you back in yeah. every year. You're going to come in every year until you're a vet. I think we'll make that deal. Yeah. All right. Deal. We're done. Louise, great mm-hmm. to talk to you again. I hope uh, everything Thank continues you. to go well. And, you know, and, and the more we sort of shine the light on these immune deficiency diseases, there's so many of them going around. And I think, what, what do we say there? They're rare, but there's lots of them. And when you add them all up, um, there's a lot of people who are, have compromised immune systems, which is one of the reasons why we all have to try and reduce the caseload of COVID as much as possible because you know you guys need us to help protect you um, every day. So thanks so much for chatting again. Great to see you, May. Good luck with the rest of Grade 3. Thank you. And um, we will chat to you guys again next year. Thanks so much, Louise. Thanks for having us. Thank Bye, you so much. <laughs> there you go. Bye. Folks, that was uh, Louise and May Driscoll, two of my favourite guests who we speak to each year. And um, we have a a great discussion about immune disorders. Some of them are are really problematic and really uh, change lives a lot. We're going to take a break for some station announcements. And when we come back, we will be talking with our guest from the University of Melbourne, Andrew Pask, who is going to be attempting to bring back the Tasmanian Tiger. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, people. You're listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Professor Andrew Pask. He's the domain leader of the Molecular, Cellular and Development Biology um, section of the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. And he also has his daughter, Evie, with us as well. We thought we'd do a whole uh, parent-daughter thing today on the show, <laughs> just a theme that's come out. Andrew, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. And welcome, Evie. Hello. Now, uh, you are going to... You know, I, I just I'm seeing Jurassic Park stuff here. You must get that all the time. But the Tasmanian tiger has been gone since the 30s. Is that right? Yeah, 1936 was when right. the last one died in captivity. Right. Yeah. In in Hobart Zoo was it? Hobart Zoo, a beautiful, amazing animal. And unfortunately, the keeper left it out one night on a particularly cold Hobart night, oh. and it perished because it was left out in the cold. Just too cold. I mean, it was the last oh, one, so yeah, obviously yeah. it wasn't going to save the species anyway, but still a tragic end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that. I knew it died at the zoo, but I wasn't yeah. aware that it was just because we let it freeze to death. Yeah. We're good, yeah. us humans, aren't we? We're, we're and great. it's one of those few animals that we actually know the moment of it, its extinction, right? We've got yeah. that fully documented. So, yeah. And presumably, because it's relatively recent, that sample was kept in a, you know, this is not some desiccated husk that's in the bowels of a museum somewhere, this sample was kept in a, in a state that is you know, good for us to be able to use. Yeah, so we're very different from other sort of de-extinction projects where mm. the, you're dealing with an animal that's been gone for a really long time. Yep. And so that DNA breaks down over time and it gets worse and worse and worse the older those specimens are. Yep. So, yeah, the great thing for us is because they are a recent extinction, there is a lot of specimens collected, which is great, and a lot of them are quite well-preserved. That said, we had to scour the globe to find specimen that actually had sufficient length DNA that we could actually, you know, properly think about achieving this project. Wow. And where where did you find it? British Melbourne, Museum? Yeah, Melbourne Museum, of course, right? Oh, Melbourne so, Museum, yeah, of course. <laughs> we look everywhere and here it is at Melbourne Museum. But we actually, yeah, it was uh, a pouch young, one that was collected from its mother's pouch when she right. was shot and brought in for the bounty when they were killing them, yeah, wiping yeah. them out across Tasmania, very aggressively hunted to extinction. And this mum came in with four babies in the, in the pouch and at the time, everything was put into formalin. So this is a really harsh chemical yep. and very bad for DNA preservation. Right. But for some reason, I guess maybe they'd run out of formalin, uh, they actually dropped these puffs into just pure alcohol, and that preserved the DNAs that made this absolutely feasible then. So we wow. were lucky to find just this, this sort of, you know, holy grail specimen that we could then actually go, hey, we can actually genuinely sequence the entire genome of this species. Yep. And then we can start to think about these questions of, you know, can we bring them back? Yep. So now, now I've got a million questions, so let's just <laughs> <laughs> So first of all, like, and, and you know, please be aware, you know, as a physics guy, most of my knowledge here literally comes from the film Jurassic Park. So that's, that's where I'm at. So how do you take... 
you know, you've got the DNA. How do you then take that to start replicating cells and making Tasmanian tiger cells in an embryo and presumably put that into another another species? How do you go about that? Yes, you know, I don't mind the Jurassic Park reference because Mr. DNA, if you remember that <laughs> yes, part of the film when he comes yes. out, he was actually right on. Right. And, uh, you know, Michael Crichton, amazing for when he, the time that he wrote that book, was he was actually, you know, that, that technology is not that far off what you actually have to do. Hmm. So basically, we still can't create life from nothing. We can't make, uh, you know, a living animal resurrect something from the dead and make it living. You can't do that. So you have to start off with life. And then you can edit that life or change that life to replicate or look like the extinct animal. Mm. So in this particular instance, and this is how all the the de-extinction projects are working, is you identify the closest living relative to the animal that is now extinct. So for us, uh, we're going to use a little fat-tailed dunnart. It's a little little marsupial about the size of a mouse. Really cute. And that's the closest living thing to a Tasmanian tiger. Well, so they're a part of a family of marsupials called Dasyurids. So that involved, that's got the, the Numbat, Tasmanian Devil, a whole yep. bunch of other carnivorous marsupials. But the Dunnut is as close as any of them. Wow, okay. Well, that's what I was just going to ask, because my understanding was that the Tasmanian tiger was on this branch that was just completely gone, right? So is there any, I mean, how close is the Dunnut or the, you know, Tassie Devil in the first place. Yeah, not close. And that causes a lot of issues for us. <laughs> yeah, that makes the job a lot bigger. Mm. So basically what you have to do is take that cell from your living animal. So for us, the closest is the, the, the fat tail donut. Not super close, yep. but it's the closest we've got that's alive. And then we sequence its entire DNA code. So we go through yep. and we have a look at every single bit of its genome. We've done that also for the Tassie tiger, the thylacine. Yep. So we've yep. got everything about its code. And then we look to see every place that it's different, so where they don't look the same. And then you physically have to go in and edit that living Dunnart cell now to have all of those differences. So you're switching that mm-hmm. cell from being a Dunnart cell now into being a Tasmanian tiger cell. And then at the end of that, you can just use, you know, our standard cloning technologies to turn right. that cell back into a living animal. Now, I say we can just use just, those. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I'll do it on Tuesday. Easy, right? But, yeah. we, I mean, we actually do that for placental mammals, so all the other yeah. mammals, all the time, right? So we can do this in humans, obviously, really yep. easily. But we can do it in mice and all livestock species and things. Nobody's ever done it before for marsupials. Mm. But there's real conservation benefits if you can turn a cell into a whole living marsupial for conservation reasons. So we're really passionate about this project, not just because we'd love to bring the Tassie tiger back, but there are tons of these technologies that we absolutely need right now to preserve our marsupials. Stuff, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. we create these frozen biobanks. We're doing that now because we're aware of these terrible adverse weather events that we're having, bushfires and things. So we can go out, we can freeze bits of tissue, and we've done that to biobank our current marsupial diversity, but we need that technology to bring those cells back into living animals. And that's exactly exactly the same technology we need to create our thylacine. So we're developing lots of technologies that will be great and of immediate benefit for marsupial conservation, but mm. underpin this sort of, you know, grand challenge of trying to de-extinct an animal. Now, we should mention at this point that this has been made possible by a, a quite sizable donation from the Wilson Family Trust. Yeah. I mean, how did that come about? Did they, are these just people who've been, you know, I have this image of, you know, all these videos that we see on YouTube of people I, I've filmed my cat in the yep. backyard and that is a thylacine <laughs> that I saw just outside of Hobart. Yeah. But, you know, like, how did they How did they get the interest in the work you were doing there? Because, I mean, it's, it's an iconic species in a sense, yep. especially for Australia because it was our apex predator. And, you know, somehow they've, they've sort of gotten interested in this and given you guys a lot of money. Yeah, this is just, a, you know, a member of the public who's genuinely passionate about Tasmanian tigers and would love right. to see them back again. He was Googling it and found me and then he just sent me an email saying, hey, I, I like the research that you're doing. Could I have a talk about maybe funding your research? And I, I get a few of these emails right from time to time. So <laughs> I've had a few of those. I actually <laughs> didn't respond for a couple of weeks. Oh, and no. then I, he still picks on me about it, going, I didn't think yeah. you were even going to email me back. Yeah. Yeah. But then I emailed back. We just had a chat for like half an hour. And he was like, oh, it's really, really cool. And then nothing. And then he said, you know, can I get, you know, some of my other people to, to meet with you and have a chat? So we chatted again. And then he's like, could you put a plan together so I put a plan together and I was like I don't know is this gonna go what's happening here yeah. so anyway at the end of it he's like what's your biggest hurdle and I said it's obviously funding mm. but also the longevity of funding yeah. having a big amount of time so that you can actually take on a grand challenge like this and say I'm going to propose to do something really novel and really big and it's yep. going to take a long time mm. and then he said you know how would five million dollars work over 10 years for you and uh 
and it was like, oh, oh my God. and you're like thinking <laughs> that that first email I deleted. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to pay attention oh, now. It was just my mind exploded. I was That's just like, this is stuff. everything I'd ever wanted to do. Yeah. yeah. Now, Evie, uh, lean in right close to that microphone for me, Evie. Um, when kids ask you at school, your friends, you know, what does your dad do? Do you say my dad's bringing back extinct species like the Tasmanian tiger? Is that what you tell them? Yeah. And and how do they respond? Like, how do you explain to them what your dad does? Um, I go, well, like, my dad, like, brings back Tasmanian tigers. Like, he's the one working on all that, and they're, they, like, pretty impressed. Yeah. And, and what what do you want? Do you want to be a scientist like your dad when you grow up, or something? are you going to say accountant or something? Not really, but I find dad very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think yeah. my kids are not that polite. Um, yeah. I keep great. on saying to her, you told your science teacher what I do? She's like, no, dad. I'm like, come on. Yeah, I get that too. Like my kids, you know, like the other day, you know, we had parent-teacher interviews and speaking to my son's science teacher and I said, now, if you need any assistance, I'm there for you. And she looked at me like, what do you do? And I thought, well, I know a little bit about, you know, a lot, but I know a little bit about science. I could probably help out with the, you know, I, I get very proud when my son sometimes from school sends me pictures of math problems. And I immediately text him back an answer on a napkin. I feel really proud. And I don't even get a thank you. <laughs> There's no love. Yeah. So what, what do you want to do, Evie, when, when you uh, get older? I don't really know yet. Well, that's a good attitude. I like it. Yeah, explore the world, see what's there. And you know, you've obviously looked at science and said, no, nah, not, not my thing. <laughs> Wise, yeah. Has Dad promised you your own thylacine? No, but I would like one. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Yeah. Now, uh, that's sort of a bit of a joke, but it does bring us into an interesting um, series of questions. When we start bringing back mm. um, various animals that are part of the ecology or were once part of the ecology, you know, that's going to have a big effect on, on the landscape and so forth. And So my understanding was uh, the thylacine was in, in Tasmania when European... Let's say boats arrived. Is that the way to put it? Um, so it was already off the mainland. Yes, um, it was already extinct on the mainland, but yep. it was in Tasmania. Yes. So what would this look like in terms of reintroduction? Would it be Australia wide? Would it be just in Tasmania? And what would the impact be? I mean, I'm sure a lot of foxes would be pissed off. Yeah, I mean that would be one of the great things. Right? Yeah. Because they would compete for that yeah. niche, which is yeah. amazing. One of the, the coolest things about the Tassie tiger is was an apex predator. So they're those animals, you know, that yep. sit right at the top of the food chain, and What's interesting about marsupials is there's no other examples of apex predators. So if you think about the other mammals, we've got Mm. wolves and bears and killer whales and tigers and lions. There's so many apex predators. And then in marsupials, there are none. The Tassie tiger was it. And what that means is it occupied an incredibly important place in that food chain. Mm. And so Mm. when it is lost from there in Tasmania recently, you start to see all sorts of crazy things happening. One great example of that is the devil facial tumour disease. Right. So this is this transmissible cancer. They bite each other's faces and they nearly went extinct. In fact, they would have if humans hadn't intervened Mm. to look after them. Uh, That that species would have gone extinct. But when you've got an apex predator, they pick off those sick, weak animals in the food chain and they stop diseases like that from spreading so quickly through a population. So it's quite possible that with an animal like the Tassie tiger there, you wouldn't have seen something like that be so severe for that population. So we do think really passionately that reintroducing that animal back into Tasmania would be a really fantastic thing for the entire network of animals, that entire food web. Well, speaking of, you know, apex predators and everything, I'm, I'm really interested to know, you know, this Tassie tiger that you will make mm-hmm. has no... Um, you know, how much do they learn off family groups and things like that? that you know, how, how confident are you that it would still inherently be an apex predator as opposed to have quite different behaviours not having Mm. grown up in that, you know, environment? Great question. And fortunately for us, uh, marsupials are pretty dumb. So they have fairly (laughs) small brains compared to the rest of the mammal groups. They don't have enormous brains. And so we think that means they probably have a lot more innate behaviours, pre-programmed behaviours. But even still, animals like wolves and things that are rescued, if you you can, they they will have a lot of behaviours that they develop on their own. Mm. But also you can train them up to have those behaviours as well. And so presumably you'd only have to do that for your first population and then hopefully they would pass that knowledge on. But those are, they're, they're not that hard to overcome, putting them back into 
that environment. I mean, the food sources still exist there. We presume they would be able to take on hunting in the same way, and you could potentially train them if not. And, uh, yeah, so we do think mm. we'd be able to actually pop them back into that ecosystem and they would occupy that, that same niche. And in terms of their, their behaviours and so forth, I mean, I, <laughs> Tasmanian devils... Uh, fierce little buggers, you know, like yeah. I would not want to come within 10 metres of one of those. Mm. I saw some people out at Hillsville Sanctuary one day popping one in a Hessian bag before a vet exam to put the gas over the Hessian bag because they didn't want to go anywhere near the mouth of this thing so that they could put it to sleep so they could examine it. It was fascinating. Yeah. This thing was nasty. You yeah. know, they're really fierce. What, what about the Tasmanian tiger, though? I mean, the word tiger obviously gives us a certain image. Yeah. But what are they, are they more like, you know, dingoes? Well, there's very little information, unfortunately, on their behaviour before they mm. went extinct, which is really sad. There's lots of information about the ones at the zoo, and yep. there's footage, you know, where somebody's walking yeah, along the outside of the cage, around. and yep. they'll follow the person yeah, back and forth, yeah. and they're patting them and stuff. And so, obviously, they were, they're probably like a grey kangaroo or something like yep. that. They're quite domesticatable if you're, you know, interacting yeah. with them every day and feeding them. <laughs> they seem quite friendly. Or just innocent. Just innocent, right? Yeah. So, but yeah. we don't know what they were like in the wild. So yeah. that'll be something that would be amazing to find out, right? There's so little information on them before they went extinct. Yeah. It's no, really it's, sad. It's fascinating. I mean, I, and I think you know, obviously, you know, we came in, we invaded the country, we slaughtered all of them in yeah. in, in record Tasmania time. in record in <laughs> yeah. record time. I mean, that's yeah. a really disturbing that we managed to eliminate entire species in in such a short space of time. But normally, a journalist. I don't like to think of myself that way, but it's kind of the role I play sometimes would ask you when. I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. We're talking about stepping on Mars probably by 2030, before or after? I would say before. We, there will be de-extinction. I don't know whether it's going to be a Tassie tiger first, maybe yep. a mammoth. Um, I think we'll see de-extinction before then. Um, but I think there's lots of different levels of, distinction, of yeah. de-extinction, whether it's going to be the perfect version of a thylacine or the perfect version of a mammoth i guess we'll have yeah. to wait to see and i suppose yeah. as, as you say the technologies that are coming out as a result of this work are what really matter yeah because they they're really the ones are. that prevent a lot of other extinctions from occurring and enable us to preserve a lot of animals so the you know the pygmy possum all, all the various things that yeah. are under threat at the moment and will be more so environmentally in the coming years that'll be super important for them as Absolutely. well Absolutely. um great stuff andrew uh i think evie dad will get you a tasmanian tiger <laughs> by your 21st birthday guaranteed is it <laughs> Is that okay? Does that sound good? Yep. Alrighty. Andrew Pask, uh, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about this today. It's a, it's a great, uh, it's an adventure in science, which I think um, many people will be thrilled to get behind. Is there, a, yeah. is there a website or something where people can follow along? Is there a webcam of you work? There is. There's the Tiger Lab, which yep. is T-I-G-R-R. If yep. you Google that, you'll find us. And, uh, yeah, you can see all of our progress there and, you know, all the cool science that we're doing. Fantastic. Yeah. And look, a big congratulations to you and also to um, to the Wilson Family Trust for putting $5 million in. I think you and I were talking just before the break on how spread over 10 years, that means longevity. It means you're not begging for money every other yeah, it's year, amazing. as most scientists have to do at the moment in this country. Yeah, it's I mean, amazing to have that security and um, hopefully that really lets you is. to do the long-term vision work that, that is needed in this case. So uh, yeah. good luck and um, bring one in. Thank you very much. We will do. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. <laughs> Folks, uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, uh, Dr. Ailey's going to talk us through some cool science. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. Uh, poor Dr. Ailey is going to have to follow on from the thylacine discussion, which is going to be tough. We've got uh, Dr. Laura back on line. Can you hear us, madam? Hey. Oh, sorry, you're eating. <laughs> Interrupted your breakfast. Multitasking. <laughs> yeah. she, was just, she just shoved a big bit of food in the mouth. Oh, dear. I felt bad. Uh, so are you going to be okay to follow that? Cause, like, I don't know. Who can follow bringing things back from extinction like Tasmanian tigers? That's like the coolest science ever. I think, too, like we've got this situation with the woolly mammoth, which I get everyone's excited about that, but that thing hasn't been around for 4,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this thing's yeah. less than a hundred years since we killed it. Yeah. Well, see, yeah. this is this is this is what I'm thinking too. They they don't start small, do they? These no. biologists, they kind of no. start quite big, really. Yep. You go know? for it, I say. <laughs> So, you know. Go hard or go home. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much what do you how got it for works. Us? Look, Dr. Shane, in the wake of the election, I thought I would uh, kind of have a bit of a discussion about climate change acceptance oh. a bit of social science right uh, okay. because yeah well see in the sense that are you telling me there's people who don't accept it yeah funny that hmm. so <laughs> so this is um kind of you know a body of research that's been going on for a very long time 
Um, and it's, it's really interesting to see basically how and why people either accept the science of climate change or don't accept the science of climate change. And I mean... These arguments can broadly be, um, you know, very broadly, there's obviously nuances, but they can be broadly, broadly transplanted into ideas of, of other areas of, of, I suppose, denial of scientific consensus, I suppose. Mm. Um, but, you know, climate change has been a bit, been a, bit of a, a playground, a great case study laboratory for this over yep. the last, yep. the last, I suppose, 20, 30 years, really. really. Yeah, no, I often bring out this book I've got when I give talks and so forth. It was printed in 1956. Yeah. And it talks about it. Yeah, right. And I think, whoa, you know, it's like 70 years old. Right. So this is the point, isn't it? That, you know, climate change, the idea of climate change, the idea of the, the mm. greenhouse effect and, and CO2 going up and, it's and issues, it's been around since the 1800s. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, this is old science, right? Yep. Um, and it wasn't until kind of the 1930s that people started going, oh, hang on a second. CO2 is actually increasing. Yeah. Oh, dear. This Not could, good. This could, be, this could be an issue. And then, of course, uh, the Keeling curve in the 19, uh, kind of 50s, 60s and 70s really brought it to the, to the fore. Um, you know, this is the, the place, nice, pure, clean air on the top of Mauna Loa in Hawaii where they went, oh, yeah, CO2 really is going up. Yeah. And, in fact, Australia played a really important role here because uh, in the 70s they established the Cape Grim uh, air quality station on the northwest coast of Tasmania because, you know, it gets all that lovely fresh air off yeah. the Southern Ocean and it was able to corroborate the increases right. in CO2. Yeah. So, in fact, Australia played a really important role in that. Nice. Um, which is kind so of we could cool measure uh, the CO2 we were putting out. Exactly. Well, the CO2 <laughs> the rest of us were putting out, yeah, right? It it, yeah, so it corroborated what was going on at Mauna Loa. So the idea that there's been, though, since kind of probably the 1980s into the 90s where the, when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change really started going, hey, guys, it's a real problem. Yep. You know, we've got to do something about this. Um, there's been this consensus gap, though, yep. between that time. And so the consensus gap is kind of broadly um, discussed as the fact that, you know, there was a, a paper way back in 2013 now um, called the 97% consensus. And it basically said, you know, um, of all the, the papers that have been published since the year dot on uh, the role of, of humans in climate change, 97.5%, I think it was at the time, of scientists agree. Mm. It's gone up since then. It's now, you know, 98, 99. I mean, we're still including all those old papers when it was yeah. still kind of, you yeah. know. And not only that, um, you know, a lot of the papers that uh, reject that hypothesis are fundamentally flawed and have been right. showed to be fundamentally flawed or are published in, uh, let's just say, non-reputable journals, even yeah. though they have been peer-reviewed, there's still yeah. a heavy bias there. So what causes that consensus gap? Because, you know, when I, I'm a climate scientist, when I talk to people, they just say, oh, well, people just need to know about it, right? It's all yeah. about education. And the interesting thing is that about the science, when we think about the science of why people think what they get, it's actually not down to education at mm. all. Fundamentally, uh, climate science denial, uh, in particular, often comes down to ideology mm. and how we think about the world and our world view. So there's been a lot of work, uh, particularly by uh, psychologists and whatnot, on, in the last kind of uh, probably 10, 20 years looking at this. Um, and there's some really interesting findings. But let me just set the scene of, of where we are in that consensus gap in Australia um, and where we've come to, because obviously opinions shift, opinions change. And, um, you know, I wanted to kind of look at this with the lens of what happened last night or it's still happening counting mm. still going on mm. um and so in australia well in the united states uh in in kind of about 10 15 years ago now they there was a, a paper that came out that was called the six americas right and so they had a look at how people uh view climate change how people um act on climate change how much people kind of um you know really their preferences their motivations behind it their their attitudes to risk all that stuff and they came up with the fact that there were kind of six broad groups. There was the alarmed, so okay. that's the, the group that is very convinced of the reality, the seriousness, yep. they're already taking steps, they've already taken, you know, whether that be via political action or personal behavioural change. There's concerned, so that's the group that is convinced that there is warming, but they're just not sure it's a serious problem. Right. Um, you know, most of them go, oh, yeah, it's fairly serious, but, hmm. you know, um, but they don't really engage with the issue personally and it's not necessarily, you know, number one on the ballot box for them. It's not the big, you know. Uh, then there's the next three groups can kind of very broadly be lumped together as the cautious, the disengaged and the doubtful. Yep. So the cautious are still like, oh, yeah, we think it's happening, but, you know... <clears throat> 
what's causing it and, you know, that kind of thing. The disengaged are just, yeah, I don't care, global warming. I've got bigger things to th- worry yeah. about. I'll be dead soon. Yeah, yeah, either yeah. that or, you know, I can't <laughs> afford my next meal, so actually I don't really care about climate change. Yep. I just, yep. you know, I'm worried where my next meal's coming from, that kind of group. And then there's the doubtful who are like, well, actually, I don't really think this is happening. I'm not 100% convinced it's not, but you haven't convinced me. Yeah. And then there's the dismissive who are just like, no, nah, it's not happening. And those are the people who actively work against um yeah the profiteers yes right we 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 rent well and you know we (laughs) we, we generally refer to them as as climate denialists and things like that i I like to i think i think sometimes that's too polite yeah because in in all seriousness a lot of them are making money off this yes and that's really what it's about it's not about them politely denying no that's right i mean you know there's all sorts of things that you can you know i might say i don't really believe that there's going to be any life found under the subsurface of europa Mm. um that's not the same as me making money off it no and this is Mm. the really interesting thing is this is where that really interesting kind of psychology comes into it right and the idea that it's actually a world view that is uh that is kind of uh guiding not all but a lot of people's uh, Mm. reactions to climate change uh, and climate change science and so they did this in Australia and it's it's just I just kind of um, they've done this over the the last few years there was a study in 2011 and another study in 2018 and another study uh, that literally came out last week actually last week two weeks ago um, that kind of looked at these groups and so the really interesting thing to me this is in Australia I should say now the really interesting thing to me is that um, the doubtful and dismissive groups haven't changed a huge amount okay. over that period. In size, you mean? In size. Yeah. Okay. In the proportion of the, the people who, who hmm. answered surveys, which kind of indicates that, well, you know, you can talk about it as much as you like. These people don't That's change shifting. their worldview. Yeah. has gone down a little bit. It's gone down from uh, 28% in 2011 to around 20 21% in the last mm. two studies, 2018 and 2020. Um Interestingly, though, the, the, the thing that was most apparent in the recent study is that the disengaged has pretty much gone away. Oh, wow. Now, whether okay. that's because they're disengaged so they won't answer a survey about climate change <laughs> in the first place. Yeah, that's a possibility. You know, that is a possibility. But, you know, it's fairly robust that they yeah, did yeah. try and get that group as okay. well. And it was like yeah. 6,000 people that they surveyed or something. So right. it's a big, yeah, it's yeah. big yeah. sample. So, um, and it's dropped considerably. So it's dropped from kind of, you know, 8 to 10% to like 3% or less. Mm. Um, so the disengaged have kind of dropped off and we've had more well yeah we've had more in the cautious but interestingly the big thing that's increased is people in the alarmed category right so those people who are very engaged who are politically motivated and all that kind of stuff so uh, it's gone from 15% in 2011 uh, the, the study in 2018 had that group at 17.5% and the study that came out a few weeks ago, 25%. Interesting. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, it's increased hugely. Um, and that kind of, you know, brings back to the fact of what we've just seen with the rise of the, the teal independents who are very, very mm. focused on climate change and stuff like that. There does seem to be an appetite for it in the community. The interesting thing too, though, from the science side of things is... Uh, how, as I said, worldview is really important here. So there's been quite a few studies who've, you know, done these um, uh, kind of stratifications into alarmed and doubtful and blah, blah, mm. blah. And then they've looked at their voting preferences. Right. Uh, a couple of studies have looked at it in a kind of two-party preferred system. Other, other studies have looked at it in terms of, you know, broader than that. And what they really find is that those who are traditionally to the, uh, let's call it the left of centre, or centre. <laughs> um, so if you were a Labor voter or a Greens voter, you were much, much more likely to be in the concerned and alarm category. And uh, if you were a Liberal or One Nation voter, this is typically what they, they stratify it into, you were much more likely to be um, not in the alarm category and also a much higher proportion in that doubtful and dismissive yep. category. Yep. So that was really interesting. And, and one really interesting study that came out a couple of years ago that really highlights how people use their worldview and interact with the science came out from a group at ANU where they gave a group of people um, a mathematical problem, right? And so what they did was they said, okay, we've got this fantastic face cream, right? And we're going to look at the effect of, of, you know, whatever it was on this face cream. Here's the maths. Here's the statistics that came through. Can you tell us, one, your voting preferences, and then can you tell us... uh, what 
um, you know, was this face cream effective based on the mathematics, hmm. right? And it was really simple mathematics, yep. you know, everybody could do. So they did that and they found a particular answer. Then they changed the question. And they said, this is not a face cream anymore. This is actually climate change and what's causing climate change. It was a cause and effect thing. And they said, right, same question, same data, which is all fake data, but it was same data, what now? You know, different group, but, you know, voting preferences again. And what they found was that what people got out of the mathematics changed depending on their voting preference. So when it was given as a face cream kind of problem, uh, you know, everything was much more even. Yep. yep. And when it was given as a climate change problem, uh, those who were Liberal and One Nation voters were much more likely to, to diminish the cause and effect, and those, particularly One Nation, uh, and those that were Greens, uh, Labor to a certain extent too, but particularly Greens were much more likely to elevate the effect beyond what it was. Right. So there was a, a kind of this polarisation and this yeah. bias. But it was really interesting wow. that there was this bias in the fundamental mathematics, how people in- interpret data ah, as well. So it's, it's, it's uh, very complex. It's one of the reasons why I keep saying we need to put more money into the arts. Yeah. Because, yeah. believe it or not, yeah. uh, the connectivity between science and yeah. our community is often yeah. done best and interpreted best through the arts, That's actually. Right. And you know, we had someone on just a few weeks back doing this over in Western Australia where they were doing some museum exhibits and so forth and, you know, showing people science through that. And I think yeah. if we don't put effort into the communication, yep. exactly how that's done that's and, right. and, and draw on people who know how to do that, yeah. we're going to keep failing. Yeah. And, um, to try and get that objective, yeah, it's Because if we just let political angles yeah. determine whether people believe the, yep. the, the data, oh, my yep. goodness, that's yeah. a bad outcome. Yeah. Ali, thanks so much for that really interesting stuff and interesting to hear the latest results. At least it's moving in the right direction, yeah. but yeah. perhaps a little bit too slow. Dr. Laura, good to see you again. Thanks for hanging on the line. Great to see you. Take care. Folks, we're going to have to hand over in a moment to the team from Eat It. I think Cam's got a pretty special show coming up for you. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Big thank you to all our guests for today. Thanks, Dr. Daly. Good to have you in the studio. Thanks, Dr. Shane. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Thanks for listening to the 3 R and have a great Sunday. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.